it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. We are here for our first official YouTube collaboration. Mm-hmm. We are joined by Jason Rivera. How's it going, Jason? Doing awesome. How are you guys? We're doing yeah, great. Thank good. you. Yeah. I got Dave here with me. Wanted to start with maybe your background. Just introduce what, what do you do in the investing realm now, managing money, whatever it is. And, and then maybe after that, how did you get started? Yeah. So I run the Value Investing Journey blog, I have for eight, nine, 10 years, which is ancient in the uh, blogging arena. We also, I also have our masterclass, Value Investing Masterclass, where we teach students how to find, evaluate, and value great stocks faster. Written a couple books called How to Value Invest and On Float, teaching people how to value invest and about investment float. And then I also manage some portfolios as well for some investment portfolios. And that is the short version of my story. Like a, like a CMA kind of thing? No, I'm actually self-taught. Um, okay. Completely self-taught. I wasn't able to go to college due to severe health issues in the past. So I'm completely self-taught. And when I say self-taught, most people are like, whatever. And they learn from mentors. I 99% of what I know is that I know about investing finance is self-taught from books, Google. Because when I first started about 15 years ago, there were no online courses with this stuff. And because I couldn't go to college, I didn't have a network of people who I could reach out to, to talk about. My dad was in the Air Force and my mom was a stay-at-home mom slash like she worked as a receptionist. So we didn't talk about things like investing. So um, completely self-taught. No no certifications, no degrees. I haven't even taken, well, I was about to say, I haven't taken one college course. I took one college course on valuation uh, from Aswath Damodoran. I think that's how you pronounce his name, years ago. I didn't finish the course. Yeah, completely self-taught. 
You're in good company. That's me and Dave too. Uh, mm-hmm. We're both self-taught. Didn't go to school for anything. I'm a huge fan of Domodoran. I know Dave is too. I've got several of his books, including those big, thick textbooks of his. And uh, yeah. it's interesting, like when you're passionate about something, how you can really learn and, and things can stick in your head that might not necessarily happen even if you are enrolled. What was it that got you interested? And you mentioned you didn't really have a network of people that introduced you into finance. So was there something that kind of drew you to the stock market investing? Like how did you even end up in like from the very beginning in that? Yes. So that's a fantastic question. So this, my, I've always wanted to make money and become wealthy ever since I was a little kid. I don't really know why. I can't remember why other than of course, to make lots of money. Who would want to do that? Yeah, exactly. And I've always been interested in business and I've always loved strategy and this kind of stuff. But the actual first thing that got me interested in specifically investing in finance was in high school. My senior year of high school, we had this call, this class called consumerism. It was a smorgasbord of classes and they taught things like how to open a checking account, how to write a check, what is a credit card, like very super basic stuff before you turn 18 and become a quote unquote adult that you should know. Another thing they taught in there though, was the theory of compound interest. And I still remember the example to this day. And this was, I'm 30, I turned 35 in December. So this was about 18 years ago. So I remember to this day, he put on the board $2,000. If you add $2,000 to your investment account and you do it, and I don't remember the exact example, but I can see him writing on the board in my head. If you put $2,000 in your investment account for five years, it, and then that you build that up and compound that at say 10% a year, which is what the market does, you'll make more money and become more wealthy than if you start in year six, investing $10,000, or something like that. I don't remember the exact example was, I was like, that's really cool. And then off of that, we did a stock competition because it was our senior year in high school. And I was the only one even remotely interested in investing. And we were like six weeks away from graduation. I in my group, I got to pick the stocks and I ended up picking Google. I put all of the $100,000 fake money portfolio into Google and it would have been worth that $100,000 if it was real money would be worth like five, five, six, seven million dollars. So that kind of that spark, the compound interest and then picking Google when I was 18, 17, 18 years old got me interested in this. Yeah, that's an amazing story. So I guess, how did you evolve into the value investor? Where did that kind of, so how did you take from picking something like Google to where you are today? How did that transformation? And I have to say this, while that was awesome, it was completely pure luck looking back at it. But I just, <laughs> I thought Google was cool and I liked the search engine and there was yeah, a brand new IPO. And so that was mostly luck, but <laughs> I didn't do anything with investing or value investing for five, six, seven years after. What kind of got me into value investing specifically is with when I was dealing with my severe health issues, I had to figure out some way to make money. I had a wife. We had, were brand new newlyweds. We had just found out uh, that we were pregnant with our first daughter. And because of my severe health issues, I didn't have any job skills. I didn't have any social skills, personal skills. I was, I couldn't do anything. Really. So I had to figure out some way to make money at some point in the future, even, even if it wasn't right now today for my family. And I thought about becoming a lawyer or uh, sorry, not a lawyer, politician. Um, and I'm the world's worst liar. So I couldn't do that. 
Yeah, yeah, you're definitely out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my wife, uh, I'll just say something just joking with her because everybody in my family, they like can immediately tell my face when I'm lying. And I'll just say something to my wife and she'll just look at me. She's like, no, you're not. <laughs> like that's it's just something on my face. I don't know what it is, but I'm just a terrible liar. So I can do that. I thought about becoming a writer, but at that point, I had been told by a high school teacher that on one of my final senior projects, I almost failed senior year because the paper we had to write, she was like, I hope you never become a writer because it's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm a professionally trained writer. So I couldn't do that. So the only thing that kind of popped in my mind other than those two things was about the compound interest and the picking of Google. And I took it from there. And I don't remember how I came across value investing, but I remember when I did, and I think it was shortly after the Demoderon. I think it was shortly after his course, I read The Intelligent Investor and came across that. And then immediately I was like, this makes perfect sense to me. That moment is ingrained in my mind. What is it about The Intelligent Investor? Let's say we're talking to a seven-year-old kid. Is there a way to boil down just like the most core part of that book to try to relay what's so profound about the book? So this is perfect. I have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old. So I'm glad you picked the 7-year-old to talk to this through because (laughs) the 3-year-old wouldn't understand the 11-year-old would just whatever. The way I would explain it to a 7-year-old would be find out what something is worth and buy underneath that. Buy something for cheaper than what you think it's worth. That's how I would boil down not only the intelligent investor, but actually all of value investing. Figure out what something is valued at, buy underneath that price. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Name? Sorry, go ahead. No, it's, it's pretty simple. Can you give some examples of, of maybe how you started thinking about that? Yes. So I went the normal stock route like everybody does. Got kicked in the teeth by Mr. Market because when I first started investing, because I, at that point, wasn't super into actually learning about value investing and the craft of it. I was investing in quote unquote stocks with good looking ratios <laughs> that don't do that. <laughs> if you're listening uh, or watching, don't do that. What happened is six months after I started investing real money this time, I lost 50% of my entire portfolio. When the, the Chinese small caps blew up, this was probably eight, nine, 10 years ago, something like that. When the Chinese small caps blew up because they were found out a lot more frauds and reverse mergers and all that. So I got crushed because all the stocks with good looking ratios were those Chinese small caps. So what kind of kickstarted me from there was I was like, I need to figure out, I need to dedicate myself to this or I need to do something else because I'm just going to lose money. So that's what transitioned me from the investor or the person playing into an actual investor. And I didn't, I was investing small amounts of money then. But the actual first real world example I have of true value investing is a business I started to buy clothes from thrift stores like Goodwill, Salvation Army, um, stuff like that for, let's say, four bucks and then sell them for 20, 25 bucks on eBay. That was my first kind of real world business experience with value investing was not stocks, although Mr. Market kicking me in the teeth hurt. It was actually buying and selling clothes on eBay. So was there parts of that? Because I'm sure you're not just going into a thrift store and buying every little thing that you can do. So were there strategies you used for that that maybe also are used in value investing for stocks? 
Oh yeah, no, that that's a very good question. I've never been asked that question before. Yes, absolutely. So one example is I would look for competitive advantages. How would I look for that in a pair of jeans, for example? One example of that is a brand name, powerful brand name. Uh, one Salvation Army at this t- at the time I was living in South Dakota, I found a pair of what looked like brand new Giorgio Armani pants at a thrift store for two bucks. Looked online. Did the research, all that, of course, which is a huge thing in value investing. You have to do the research. You actually have to know what to look for to be able to spot it if it's a good deal. So I did my research before that, found these pants and did the research on eBay to see what they're worth on on the store. And I ended up selling them for 80 bucks. So I turned $2 into $80 with, with similar value investing principles. There are other things, again, if you want to go real deep into this, what's coming to the top of my head right now is balance sheet strength. It, they looked like a brand new pair of pants, so they had a clean balance sheet, if you want to put it that way. And there was some other stuff too, but if you guys want to keep going down that rabbit hole, because that's a fan, that's a fascinating question that you asked. Let's try one more, hop, one more hop down the rabbit hole. Let's see. One more hop down the rabbit hole. So to avoid terrible stocks, or in this case, clothes, can't have holes in them can't have stains, can't have problems with them, can't have major red flags. So that's another example of using value investing principles to buy and sell clothes to make money. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerd Wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Love it. Yeah, that's awesome. I guess, okay, so let's go back. So you started this business, and then was there a, a part in time when you were in business that you went back to the stock market? Yes. So I built that business from zero, like literally whatever money, because at that time we didn't have any money, but literally whatever money I had, and it was probably a couple hundred bucks at most, I turned that couple hundred bucks or whatever it was into an inventory worth $20,000. And I stopped doing that for several reasons. First, my wife hated all the inventory in our house <laughs> because at that stage it was all in my house and we didn't have where to put it. So she was getting frustrated with me. But the more important thing is why I stopped that and got back into stocks is because I realized, and I, I don't remember the exact Buffett quote about this, but I realized that all of my cash was in the inventory and that to keep the business growing, I would keep having to do that which means I couldn't pay myself because you have to constantly in this kind of business, you have to constantly keep reinvesting the money into more and more inventory to continue growing it. So I couldn't get the cash out. When I realized that I sold off the inventory, actually, I think we ended up moving uh, not too long. So I sold off as much as I could. And then we donated the rest of it back to Goodwill and Salvation Army <laughs> because I just, there's no way I could have got my cash out of it while still growing the business. Now, looking back, if I would have known what I'd known now, I would have probably hired somebody to help me or, found a storage unit to do that. But that transition is what got me back into kind of uh, looking at the stocks kind of full-time. So do you feel like the experience from running that business really helped lay the groundwork for value investing and taking it from there? Oh yeah, absolutely. One, another of Buffett's, of my favorite sayings that frankly I used to think was crap. Now I realize it's hundred percent true. I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor and I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. That is... Again, I used to think that was crap. That is 1 million percent true. Because the more you are in real world business situations, the more you have to think things like, do I have enough margin of safety? Is there too much risk here? Am I comfortable with the risk? Is this worth my time? Is this worth the opportunity cost? All these things that you think about as a value investor looking at a stock, you have to think as a business owner as well, vice versa. And so both doing both combined has helped. I'm positive it's helped both aspects of my career. Well, just to throw something out there, I'm assuming since you have this very, you have this memory that's really burned into your brain of what happens when you have so much inventory that it doesn't leave any cash. That's a real business lesson and huge corporations deal with that too. Oh yeah. No. And, and I still teach about this in videos that we put on YouTube on our channel and in the podcast and in, even in the course. If you, and I just actually talked about this a couple of days ago when I was making a video for my own channel, is I saw a company that's inventory was going straight up while its accounts receivable were not going up hardly at all. I was like, this is a massive problem. This is a massive potential problem because if they are building up inventory for, let's say, the holidays, that's one situation because of the supply chain issues we're dealing with now, that's a possibility. But if that's not the case, and I assume that's not the case because it was a health like supplement company, if they can't sell their inventory and they have all this inventory, that's a massive 
potential loss if they have to write it down or if they have to sell it at a discount, which will lower their margins, lower revenue, all that stuff, lower profits, lower cash flow. That's a massive potential issue. And yeah, that, that is ingrained in my mind. And that's something I look for at every company I look at now is, especially if, it, if they produce hard assets, if they produce hard assets, what's their relationship between the accounts receivable and the inventory? Cause they should be about going up and down at about the same rate. If they're not, you need to figure out why, cause there could be a potential massive issue. Can you say just quickly, like what's accounts receivable and how do people find accounts receivable and inventory? Yes. So accounts receivable is on the balance sheet. That's where you can find it. It's also known as trade receivables, depending on what you're looking for. I use Morningstar and they trade, trade changed it, the wording to trade receivables. I'm not sure why, um, but they did. So accounts receivable, trades receivable, same thing. Essentially, that's the money you're expecting from clients, customers, whatever you call them that they are going to pay you either at some point in the future for whatever goods or services you have. Inventory is what you are selling. Inventory could be a uh, thing like Walmart. Their inventory is the foods, groceries, clothes, all that stuff. That is their inventory. And that can also be found on the balance sheet as well. Yeah. So I guess when you're looking at those things, how do you, I guess segueing from that, how do you find some of these red flags? Is it just reading through the financials? Of the companies, or are there different aspects of the company that just speak to you that tell you, hey, this is a problem or could be a problem? So at this point of my career, it's, again, it's been about 15 years and it's probably thousands or tens of thousands of companies that I've evaluated. And when I say evaluated, like some degree, I, everything I do is manual. I don't use any software. I don't use any screeners. I look through things manually. Yes, that probably sounds crazy to both of you and to maybe everybody else listening, but with my process that I figured out, um, the first look I do is what I call the visual preliminary analysis. I have this worksheet um, that I give as a free lead magnet to um, people who sign up for our site and also to students that lists this kind of 15 things like market cap, book value per share, is it rising or going up, cash conversion cycle, all these other terms. And on this sheet, if something doesn't meet my criteria, then I discard it because if it doesn't meet those certain criteria for the certain numbers, so let's say cash conversion cycle, because that is directly applicable to what we're talking about, accounts receivable and inventory. If that is going up at a huge rate, for example, you need to figure out why. That's a massive potential red flag because it shows you that the company is either having trouble selling stuff, they're having inventory issues, they have too much inventory that they can't sell, or their suppliers are crushing them with making them pay faster, something along those lines. So I do that once a company reaches, surpasses that criteria, if it does, or if those criteria on that worksheet, then I start reading the financial, which is probably backwards to most people that I talk to. Most people start reading the 10Ks and the, and the quarterlies first. I don't do that anymore. The reason being I don't do that anymore is because at this point, I know so many industries, I know so many business models that that I can tell with very good accuracy, whether the industry they're in is going to be bad or not in terms of the economics and the profits. So I wait, I want it to meet the minimum criteria first, and then I get into actually digging into the other company or to the actual financials and the footnotes and stuff like that. I'm actually right there with you. If I'm looking at a company and I'm like, this could be a good opportunity. I'm running my little filters too, because unless I'm doing like competitive research of this company competes against the company I'm looking at. You got to have some of those filters in place. There's too many stocks 
out there and we only have 40 hours, depending on, I guess, how much time you're committing. Most average full-time person will only have 40 hours in a week to, to look at that. And you really have to pick your spots. Could you give another example uh, of the sheet of a red flag? And then obviously there's probably a metric behind it, but then what's the business application of that red flag, similar to what we said about inventory? Yes. So another thing that I do that's different than most uh, value investors, most just investors in general, is I don't care anything about net profit. I don't care anything about earnings. I often don't even know, I actually pretty much almost 100% of the time, don't know what the company's net profit is. When I look at operating profit as as the other main metric, and I also look at free cash flow and owner's earnings, but specifically when it comes to operating profit, I look for companies to have consistently higher than 10% profit margins on operating profit. If that's not above, that means they're probably not making enough money for to grow the business while also sustaining the business. So they might have to issue debt or they might have to issue shares to con- continue generating cash to grow the business. And in most cases, that's not optimal. So they just, again, just that one metric, if that doesn't surpass that threshold, that gives me an idea of is management allocating capital? Are they investing their money well? Are they earning a high return on their investments or their products or services? And that that can lead to these other things, potential issues with inventory and some of this other stuff we talked about. So that leads me to ask that question. I I, I will admit I probably fall into that that camp that you do as well. I don't pay much attention to earnings. So why don't you pay attention to earnings? Oh, I love this question because I have four or five videos and blog posts on my own channel and stuff for that because I've talked about this so much because literally every, thank you, literally every investor I talk to that I say, I don't care about net profit. They just look at me like I'm crazy. Like, why don't you look at net profit that everybody looks at net profit? Why don't you look at earnings? The reason I, frankly, I hate net profit or earnings is because it's so easy to manipulate. If you have good enough accountants, if you have good enough lawyers, you can make the number whatever you want it to be, essentially. Take GE, for example. I think this 2012, 2013, 2014 timeframe, they had built up net operating loss carry forwards, which are essentially tax credits for being coming or for losing money in a year to offset gains that they had in, the, in that year so they didn't have to pay taxes. And people were freaking out. And I remember this huge thing about it. And people were freaking out. Why doesn't one of the biggest companies in the world have to pay any taxes? It's completely legal that they didn't have to pay taxes, but, and those net operating loss carry forwards can be super valuable for companies, but that also, they go again, or they don't go against, they lower the amount of net profit you show. So you don't have to pay taxes on it. That is one main reason I hate net profit. It's because it's so easy to manipulate, especially with the taxes changing all the time between the various presidents and administrations. I want to know what a company earns from its operations, which is why I use operating profit as one of the proxies. Also, another reason why I use free cash flow and owners earnings as well is because those are more realistic kind of business numbers than net profit. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned some of the courses you do. So imagine you take them through a path. So let's say somebody has prescribed to this idea. Okay, yes, I want to take a stock and figure out how much it's worth and then buy it when it's less than that, what would be the next stepping stone of whether that's a major principle concept or what's the next path of the evolution there for somebody who's just learning? 
In my opinion, and I'd like to get your guys' thoughts on this, in my opinion, it's to make sure you have a solid foundation with your mindset when it comes to value investing. In my opinion, and based on my experience with students over the years, if you don't have the quote-unquote value investing mindset, which is things like discipline, patience, looking for things like margin of safety, or and not even if you don't have them now, because these things, in my opinion, can be developed, but you have to at least be willing to develop them as well. And if you don't have the proper mindset, it doesn't matter how many valuation techniques, it doesn't matter how good you are at doing an asset reproduction valuation. If you don't have the patience to wait until something is undervalued and you don't have the discipline to keep looking while stuff is not undervalued, you're not going to, you're not going to succeed as a value investor, in my opinion. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm going to take like the, I'm going to pretend like I'm a, one of the snobby students who's like talking back to the teacher. Why should we be patient? Why should we have discipline? Yeah. Why should we be patient right now when everything is just going up to the right? What the heck? Love that. Because not only do I love that because it's a great teaching point, but because almost every day, at least a few times a week, I get questions from friends or family. Hey, did you see XYZ went up a thousand percent and you're an investment guy. Why didn't you tell me to invest in this? <laughs> and all those things that I'm sure you guys have heard over the years too, is while this lasts, while this craziness lasts, people are going to make a lot of money. Historically, that's what happens. People make a lot of money in these kind of situations. People also lose, again, typically even more money after things crash. So why I think value investing is important now while other people are calling saying value investing is dead and it doesn't work anymore and the, the world has changed and all that. I don't think that's true. Yes, the world has changed. Yes, innovations have changed. Yes, the U.S. federal government and Federal Reserve are manipulating the money supply, in my opinion, and printing money and doing stuff with the debt and interest rates to affect that on a side of affect value investing. The principles will always work, especially when a crash happens, because when a crash happens, if you even just understand the basics, principles of value investing, just the basics, you don't even understand how to value anything, just the basics. You will look for things like margin of safety. You will look for things with less risk. You will look for things with less downside. And that essentially is the principles of value investing. Yeah, I agree with those things. And I think a couple things spring to mind when you were talking about those ideas. First of all, Abbasan, who's one of my heroes. Love and his stuff. Yeah, amazing writer. He's one of those, he's one of those teachers like Oswald Damodoran, who's so good at being able to explain difficult concepts so that way people like us can understand them. And I was listening to a podcast not too long ago that, that Mobison was talking about, and they asked him that a similar type of question is to, are things different now? And his response I thought was pretty amazing. He said, to my knowledge, we have not suspended the laws of economics. The things that happened in the 1950s and the 1980s and the 2010s and now have not changed. He said, so businesses make money 
and they reinvest them and then they become more profitable and it just, it becomes an evolution of a cycle. He said, what really has changed is the idea that the way that we value companies in that we used to value them based on hard assets. But he said, now businesses are more based on intangible assets. And he said, to be blunt, the accounting rules have not kept up with the way the economics function. And so we have to look at different ways of reconstructing the income statement and the balance sheet to more accurately reflect the financials of these companies. But he said, going back to the idea that this time it's different, it's not different. He said, these SaaS companies are really no different than what Exxon or what GM was doing 50 years ago. They made, they created a profit. They made, created a product. It made money. It made profits. They reinvested those profits so that the company can continue to grow, which is exactly the same thing that the companies are doing today. It's just that the way that the balance sheets and it's just the way the financials are arranged don't accurately reflect that. And so it just, it skews things. It makes things look different than they in real in reality really are. So I thought that was fantastic. The other thing that springs to mind is the great quote from Monish Prabhai, another fantastic value investor, where you know, heads I win, tails I don't lose that much when uh-huh. he tries to explain the idea of risk and looking for companies that are are going to be strong companies that can handle the up ups and downs of the market. And I think all the things you were talking about are fantastic, but those are two things that just sprung to mind as as you were talking about that. 100% agree with both of those, especially the Mabusin stuff. A, love his stuff. Love his stuff. I have some of his stuff bookmarked. I think one that I have bookmarked that I've gone back to over the years several times is his paper that he put out on the um, positive effects of higher returns on invested capital. And that is one of my favorite papers I've ever read when it comes to investing. But I agree. At this point, again, 15 years, I've studied an enormous amount of financial history. I'm sure you guys have as well. These things go in cycles. And back in, what, 2000, before the tech bubble popped, people thought this was a new age because of the internet and we need to value stocks differently. And who cares if they have, who cares if they don't make any money, they're going to get clicks and whatever it was back then hasn't changed today either. Even with all the even more advanced technology we have now, it, it in my opinion, again, it hasn't changed. I completely agree with that. And then Pabri, yeah, that is, again, a perfect illustration of value investing. Heads I win, tails I don't lose a ton of money. That is my number one rule in all of investing. Don't lose money. If I do, keep the downside minimum. And that's why I haven't bought anything in six years because I can't find anything that meets my strict criteria. But that, again, is part of value investing right now with all the stuff we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So if you could go back in the time machine, take yourself to when you first started, when you had several years experience, when you were in the thick of it, and then over the last six years, of you said you haven't bought anything. What's changed and what hasn't changed when it comes to the things you look at, the way you look at things in that kind of in that realm? Honestly, I haven't changed the way I do things much. I've more refined it than completely changing things in and out. That, yeah, that, yeah, I haven't really changed anything to a large degree. Again, it's just more refinements, more tweaks, getting better at what I do and what I look for. In terms of how overall investing has changed, that's changed enormously with the huge amount of tech companies out there, again, without the hard assets, you have to value those completely different with the money, money printing and the low interest rate policy and the debt 
issues. That has changed. That has, in my estimation, manipulated the market and gotten more people into the market because interest rates are so low they can't earn they can't earn a yield anywhere else. So they have to get in the, into the stock market, which why in my, again, I keep saying my opinion, but I don't want to speak for you guys here. That's why the market keeps going straight up because people literally don't have anywhere else to invest to earn a, a yield. If you have, uh, people say we don't have it, uh, negative interest rates in the US. And while that's technically true, if you have your money in a savings account, it is <laughs> 0.05% or whatever it is, inflation's at 5.4%. So you're already you're automatically losing money just right there because of inflation. Then you have taxes, then you have fees on top of that. So realistically, right now, to earn any return whatsoever, even let's say a six percent return, which is below market average over the last 120 years, the market does about a 10% per year on average. So you want to earn a six percent return. You have to invest in something that does about eleven percent per year because of the effects of inflation right now. Um, and all the other craziness that's going on. So it's made it harder. This All the stuff that's going on that we've been talking about, it's made it harder to find not only value, but to make money with that value. Because everybody right now with the, all the insanities in the market and the sky high valuations and all that are just trying to get rich quick right now. That's, yeah, that's how it's changed. The mindset to me has changed more than the actual underlying principles, if that makes sense. No, it, it totally does. I, I wonder too, along with all those things that you mentioned, I think it definitely have, I feel like have had definitely had an impact. I also wonder if the ease of retail investors now taking part in this game and the, the air quote democratization of investing through our friends at Robinhood have allowed. I, I, I'm not a fan. I'm, anybody that listens to me know I'm, knows I'm not a fan. But one thing that they have done is they have, they have caused all these other brokerages to lower their fees to, so there's no, there's almost no friction or no speed bump to prevent people from getting into the markets now. And now you have, you know, the cash app and you have PayPal and you have all these apps now that are allowing you to easily buy and sell stocks. And so I wonder if some of the, the attraction to this now is, is, is becoming a little bit of a, a poker game. It's back in uh, 10 years ago when Texas Hold'em was the big thing and everybody was playing it on their computers. I, I feel like maybe some of that has come back now. Oh, I 100%. I was one of those people playing poker stars back in the day too. After Chris <laughs> were, uh, Hopefully you're money. doing it on a computer and not face-to-face because if you can't lie, I'm guessing yeah. bluffing is a <laughs> bit of a challenge too. Yeah. No, I don't gamble uh, anymore. Uh, and if I do, it's like 50, 60 bucks because I'm just like this. Yeah. But that's another story for a different day. But yeah, no, I 100% agree. And it's in my estimation overall that is a good thing that more people can invest in my estimation. That's a good thing. The problem I have with this conversation though, is that what I tell everybody who asks to invest money with me or asks just in general, what should I do with my investments? This is the investment advice I give to anybody who asks me whether they're investing with me or not. If they ask me, how should I invest my money? A, do you know what you're doing? Do you want to spend a lot of time researching the stocks? Usually pretty much every, all the time, the answer is no. So I say in that case, you should either invest with somebody like me that you trust, who knows what they're doing, who likes doing this stuff, or you should invest in an index fund. 
You should not invest in meme stocks. You should not invest in all the other craziness that's going on. Because yes, while people are going to make money doing that, if you're not on the in crowd on Wall Street bets and you don't know when they're going to start selling, you're going to get crushed. Just absolutely destroyed. For example, when GameStop, when everybody was asking me about GameStop back in February, March, April, whenever that was earlier um, this year, everybody in my network knows I'm an investment guy. I've been for a long time. My brother, my my wife, people who never once asked me about stocks or anything. Should we buy GameStop? <laughs> and I told them all no and gave them my reasons. And usually when people do that, they still end up doing it and whatever. And that's fine. I don't take any of this personally anymore. But after GameStop went up, my brother was like, why didn't you tell me to invest? It's going up or we'd have made a lot of money. And then it just crashed. And I just sent my brother, again, being a smart ass older brother, <laughs> I sent my brother a text message that says, you're welcome. It says, <laughs> for what? It said, for saving you a lot of money. <laughs> and I did that in a flippant way because he's my brother. But if you don't know what you're doing, you sh- in my again in my opinion you shouldn't invest in the stock market in individual stocks you shouldn't pick individual stocks if you aren't in this all the time and you don't know what you're doing because at some point you're going to get crushed another th- reason another thing i like in this too is would you want if let's say you need brain surgery would you want to get brain surgery from a part-time brain surgeon or would you want to invest with somebody who invests on a full-time basis and has the results to back up that they know what they're doing? That's another thing. If you're going to invest with somebody, get their results. I think that's really a timeless lesson that can be applied for any market cycle is this idea. Make sure you know what you're doing. You've got a ton of resources to help people exactly with that. So where can people go if they're interested in learning more from you, getting, getting some good advice and some good tips on how to invest? Yeah. If people want to learn more from my stuff, we have our blog, com. Same thing on YouTube, Facebook, pretty much all the social media platforms. If you want to learn more about our masterclass, it's mastermind.valueinvestingjourney.com for that. But yeah, that I'm all over the place. So anywhere you want to find me, email me, DM me, whatever, and I respond. That's awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, Jason. It was a lot of fun. And I loved hearing about your backstory. I think we don't really talk much about the backstory of investors. And that was just super fascinating to to hear about your journey. You know, thanks for joining us today and have a good rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks for the invite, guys. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Jason. It was awesome. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.